Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 125, Pontiac's War, part 2. In our last episode, we continued to look at Indian dissatisfaction with the British, moving from the relatively minor agitation in the Wyoming Valley as Connecticut farmers moved in, to the events in the Great Lakes and the Ohio. A religious movement which stated that the Indians had fallen off the true path, had grown and birthed a sense of pan-Indianism. The disappearance of New France, Amherst's restrictive trade policies, and continual migration had created a powder keg, finally ignited in May 1763 by an Ottawa chief named Pontiac. Within two months, the British had lost every settlement west of Detroit, while the Indians were launching raids deep into Pennsylvania and Virginia. It took months for the British to realise what was happening, but Amherst had resolved to call together the provincials to launch a counterattack in 1764. This moment, at the end of June 1763, is where we left things at the end of last episode. Amherst's plans necessitated the survival of the three key British forts, Pittsburgh, Niagara and Detroit. This was all well and good in theory but much harder to do in practice. All three settlements struggled from attacks, lack of food and general weariness. As more men died in each raid, that left ever fewer to conduct the defence of the settlements. The British had some success on the diplomatic front, making inroads with the Iroquois to pull the Senecas out of the fight, as well as helping in raids against the Delawares and Shawnees. Though Indian Commissioner Sir William Johnson was aware that this would be meaningless unless Amherst restored the practice of gift-giving. Johnson was equally aware that Amherst would never do this, and so a campaign to undermine the Commander-in-Chief developed. He wrote extensively to the Board of Trade, and sent his deputy Krogan to London to handle things in person. Johnson's efforts were quite unnecessary. When reports reached London that, after all the effort that had gone into securing the American colonies from the French, Amherst had lost the continent to Native Americans, they were less than pleased. It seemed incredible that despite having 8,000 redcoats, the entire frontier from New York to Carolina had dissolved. Amherst's allies in London, Pitt, Legioner and Cumberland had all been removed. Egremont, Halifax and Grenville recalled him to London in order to update the King on the North American situation, a polite way of sacking him. Before leaving, Amherst recalled Major General Thomas Gage, who had been living in Montreal to New York. He set sail in November, and it was only when he reached Britain that he understood he was not viewed as the conqueror of Canada, but as the man who had just lost the continent. 
At this juncture, there are a couple of different directions I could take the narrative. If we were to be strictly chronological about things, the most logical direction would be to pivot the military crisis of Pontiac's war into the wider political, economic, and social crisis that would consume North America and London, but instead I want to pick up these themes later. We'll for the moment focus on Pontiac, and then double back on the narrative next time. While events raced on in New York and London, they were already behind what was going on in Detroit. In October 1763, Pontiac offered Fort Detroit peace. A truce was signed. The commander, being unable to negotiate with the Indians, only Johnson could do that. This was the opportunity to end the war. But technically, Amherst had been recalled, not dismissed. He had left Gates as interim manager, not as successor. Gates felt bound to follow in Amherst's plans, and so the war extended into 1764. Since arriving in America in 1755, Gates had shown both a tendency towards caution and a distinct lack of imagination. Amherst's plan was, essentially, to crush the Indians. He wanted to raise 3,500 provincials to support the Redcoats. A force would be led in the north from Niagara to Detroit, and Green Bay, led by Colonel John Bradstreet. While in the south, Colonel Henry Bouquet was to march westward of Pittsburgh, attacking the Delaware, Mingo, and Shawnees. In short, none of it worked. Expected support from the south didn't arrive. The colonies were unwilling to supply provincials. The colonies struggled with financing. What provincials did arrive showed up late and often deserted. Bouquet ended up with three quarters of his expected strength and was unable to launch the campaign until October 1764. Further north, Bradstreet had 1,400 of his promised 4,000 men, although he also had 500 Indian allies from 19 separate nations, including all those that had been hostile the previous year, with the exception of the Potawatomi's, Delawares and Shawnees. The tribes wanted trade, not war, and were happy with Johnson's terms. Receiving captives, ostracising hostile Indians, compensating and guaranteeing protection of traders, and submitting disputes to appropriate British arbitrators. Johnson coupled this with gifts and an end to the ban on alcohol sales. Bradstreet set off from Niagara at the beginning of August and was met by their few remaining foes submitting. It soon turned into a victory march. Bradstreet was able to relieve Detroit before the month was over, but by this point he had grown overconfident. He sent forces to resupply Michimalanac and Fort Edward Augustus, and seemed to have his eyes set on making himself Lord of the Great Lakes. He inserted a clause into the treaty making the Ottawas, Chippewas, Hurons, Miamis, Potawatomis, and Mississaguas the subjects of King George, who claimed sovereignty 
over all and every part of this country, in as full and as ample a manner as in any part of his dominions whatever. The chiefs made their mark on the treaty, but cannot possibly have understood Bradstreet's intentions. What they would have understood is that when Pontiac sent a peace belt in lieu of his own attendance, Bradstreet chopped the belt into pieces with a hatchet. Pontiac's stature had greatly diminished over the previous year, but Bradstreet restored it in an action that has been described as the equivalent of urinating on a peace treaty. Days later, word arrived from Gage that Bradstreet had no authority to agree to the treaty in the first place. He was to abandon the agreement and then destroy Shawnee and Delaware villages. Bradstreet justified himself, planning to send return prisoners, but none came. He had alienated all his potential allies. When word arrived from Gage and Bouquet that attacks had continued from the Ohio, and instructing Bradstreet to launch an expedition which was almost certainly a suicide mission, he spent the rest of the campaign asking his Indian allies to launch attacks, while he defended himself to Gage and refused to move. Eventually, on October the 18th, he gave up and returned to Niagara. The journey was a disaster, beset by storms and supply issues. Bouquet's campaign had more success. He met with the tribes and was able to use diplomacy to bring peace to the Ohio without firing a shot, all within six weeks. Gage seemed to think the war was over, but in reality it had shifted westwards. The Ohio had been calmed, but the tribes of the Great Lakes were offended by Bradstreet and a new threat, the Shawnee, Charlotte Casco, who was rising in the Illinois country. To pacify Illinois through the military would require about 3,000 redcoats, according to Bradstreet and Bouquet. A financial impossibility. Peace would need to be achieved through diplomacy. A number of efforts were made, Krogan hosting a particularly successful conference in May 1765. Negotiation was a slow process, not helped by the British misunderstanding Indian leadership structure. Pontiac was often treated as a commander-in-chief rather than just one of many chiefs, and one inclined towards peace at that. As time wore on, he became increasingly pessimistic that the French would return to America. While this made him receptive to the British, they acted as though Pontiac had the power to end the war. They offered to make him the leader of all the Western Indians, but this did not account for the war party in the Ohio, led by Charlotte Casco. Krogan was injured and captured in an attack by some of Charlotte Casco's warriors, Kickapoos and Miscoutons. Krogan recovered his strength and then played on the fears of his captors that the British would soon react. Sure enough, the five Wabash nations, Kickapoos, Miscoutons, Miamis, Biancashaws and Weirs, asked for a negotiated settlement. Charlotte Casque 
ordered Krogan to be burned, but Pontiac intervened in an attempt to restore lost influence. Pontiac's sole condition was that the British occupy forts in the same manner as the French, as tenants on the fort, but with no claim to either the surrounding land or the land the fort sat on. Krogan raised no objections, even if he had no intention on following through with this. Agreement was reached. Krogan wrote to Gates that the British could now occupy Illinois, and the last French forces retreated southwards, setting up St. Louis as a new base. Charlotte Casquet followed them in late 1765. The real leader of the rebellion, the British assumed, was Pontiac's. The war was over. What lessons did everyone draw? Pontiac thought that he was now the leader of the Westwood Indians. While Gage and the British might have had a high opinion of him, they would not support him as leader. By 1768, he lost his chieftainship and was killed in 1769. Nobody cared. Other Indians learned they could exert some control over the British. They had revolted, objecting to how the British were treating them, and all policies they objected to, such as limiting trade of ammunition and alcohol, as well as gift-giving, were reverted. They made the mistake of placing too much faith in the British. The British would not fairly mediate conflicts, and they would not control their colonists. But this would only be understood in the future. The British learnt that they could not exert direct control over the Indians. The forts in the West were expensive, but Gage, in his reports, wrote they were necessary to control trade, but that garrisons could be reduced. He knew the British did not have the strength to control the interior. And so he argued for adherence to the 1763 proclamation that would limit Euro-American settlement beyond the Appalachian Ridge. The British understood that any attempt to settle the land would once again destabilise the region. Either way, the crisis was over. Except it wasn't. As I mentioned earlier, Pontiac's War was just one element of the trouble engulfing North America. Next time, we'll begin to look at the rest of it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.